If you missed the last episode of Catalyst, go back and listen. If you're caught up, here's where we left off. You know, it was one of the largest mass shootings in the United States at the time. I'm here to tell you that you have absolutely no idea how you're going to react in a situation like that until it happens to you. The only thing you can do is prepare. Our job is just to make sure that everyone is as prepared as they can be and can operate as well as expected under extremely adverse and chaotic situations. Call 911. So if you're waiting on a first responder to come and save this situation, uh, time's not going to allow it. It's just the clock is ticking. Do you expect that the legislature will probably be talking about allocating more money to this program in the future? We hope that's the case. and because we know the demand far exceeds the supply or the, the funding that we get right now. I think it's sad that those are the types of measures that we have gotten to, but it, to not do that would be ignoring the reality that we live in today. There was a disagreement and uh, again, he was terminated from employment. The suspect was pulled over on an unrelated traffic violation. He was on a long spiral of, of going down. He didn't wake up Saturday morning and walk into his company and, and then it happened. August 31st, 2019. A man fired from his job that morning went on a shooting spree in the West Texas cities of Midland and Odessa. Twenty-five people were injured, including three police officers. Seven others were killed. Stopped at a red light. He was murdered with an AR-15. Including Carla Burns' brother, Joe. One minute this family, this beautiful, innocent family, was enjoying a Saturday afternoon. The next minute, they were living in a virtual war zone. Our whole town became a war zone. Just weeks after the attack, Byrne testified before state lawmakers. Very easily circumvented the federal law background checks and purchased a gun from a private seller who is not legally required to put his potential buyers through a background check. We feel for all of your perspectives and it's our job. You're right. It is our job and shame on us if we don't do something. If we can prevent even one more child from being murdered, if we can prevent one more father from not being murdered in front of his children, if we can prevent one more mother and father from burying their child, if we can prevent one more daughter from rolling up to her brother's gravesite to see her mother on her hands and knees digging in the mud so that her dead son might have flowers on his grave. Isn't this worth all of our efforts? lost friends, family members, and co-workers from these acts of mass violence. Both the Texas Senate and House have recently formed committees to address mass violence in the state and the wide array of solutions proposed to prevent future tragedies. Okay, at this time, Chair calls Colonel Stephen McCraw, Director of Texas Department of Public Safety. Well, first, the most significant threat right now is a self-radicalized lone actor using available weapons against soft targets. The goal was to stop violent criminals before they commit mass murders. Now that is, as, as you've explained, a very complicated process. Um, digging into the who and the how uh, and what can we do to disrupt that along 
the path. So have your department taken a position on any of these issues? Man, we don't take positions. We just implement in terms of what policymakers like yourself you know, tell us to do. Some of the first meetings focused heavily on gun control. My response to all of these senseless murders is don't take away my right to defend myself. Background checks, red flag laws, protective orders, video games, racism, and mental health. But no real consensus beyond the current system isn't working. As legislators, we cannot continue to sit by idly and let innocent lives be lost due to senseless gun violence. The cry has gone out across our state that this type of horrendous action must be stopped. We owe it to the people of Texas to have productive conversations on how we can keep Texans safe. And we're going to do it. Colleagues, in my 47 years, I don't think ever have we dealt with a more life and death issue than this. And it's not an understatement to say that the eyes of Texas are upon us. Lawmakers have agreed Texas does a good job responding after attacks, but what happens before that point needs work. And I think we've seen that time and time again. You know, a mama that had yeah. gut feelings, teachers who had gut feelings, mm -hmm. and yeah, we've got to help the public understand how important it is that they come forward with those feelings. I know there are ways to identify individuals who need help, many of them mental, uh, behavioral health issues. When it comes to violent um, occurrences, we know statistically less than 5% of those occurrences um, are related to individuals that have mental health conditions. Just because somebody shoots somebody or engages in a mass killing doesn't mean that they necessarily have mental health that's correct. Behavioral health problems. That's correct. Certainly, some of these shooters have mental illness problems. Some of them are pure D evil. And I don't know how you predict evil. I personally am not willing to sacrifice our Second Amendment rights to try to prevent evil from occurring. The governor's office and the Department of Public Safety say that's where reporting suspicious activity can be crucial. Uh, we need to get everybody involved. Every person has got to be aware of their surroundings and be able to and willing to report suspicious activity when they see it. A statewide network to do just that already exists. The public can report suspicious activity through the iWatch Texas app, the DPS website, or over the phone. The state tells us more than 13,000 reports have been filed in the last five years, and multiple reports have related to credible threats. There's been a spike in recent years surrounding the latest attacks. Now leaders want to see even more reports. It can simply be a reasonable indicator that, that, that based on the behavior that's been observed, okay, that, that one would believe that a crime could be, or they're thinking about committing a crime or an act of terrorism. What can we do to increase the public's awareness of these? What are those pre-attack indicators? Identify those and educate the public so when they see those things, that they report those things in a timely manner. So this is the call. This is the Fusion Center's watch. Okay. But fielding all those reports can be challenging. A lot of it is filtered through the state's eight fusion centers. It's a fusion of many different agencies, local, state, and federal, analysts, sworn, 
um, civilian employees who uh, gather intelligence, create intelligence products. And all of the functions that deal with the emergency operations. Following El Paso's Walmart shooting this summer, we toured that city's fusion center. Uh, August 3rd, it was full. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it was, it was staffed for 10 days straight. We have Department of Public Safety. We have the El Paso Sheriff's Office. We have the El Paso Police Department, obviously. We have the FBI. We have Border Patrol. We have Federal Protective Services. So the idea of a fusion center is to really bring a bunch of law enforcement agencies together so they can help each other keep our communities safer. Correct. In years past, especially in the intelligence community, people would silo information and be very protective of the information they have, whether it be a lack of trust or whether it be um, wanting to use that information for their uh, agencies. The Fusion Center is designed to get all those units, agencies together so they share information. Dozens of fusion centers popped up across the nation following 9-11. Rooms just like where we stood, full of people taking calls, monitoring the web, watching surveillance video, talking to other agencies, and listening to Texans. Our, our crime camera system is, is, all, is all managed here. Especially with the technology today, there are so many means in which people share information, media, social media. Um, so there's so many more opportunities to pick up a tip before something happens. Um, and that again requires resources. And the governor, as you see, has committed to building up those resources. We certainly have mechanisms in, in place to receive those suspicious activity reports and act on those. But obviously, the more resources we can get, the better, because there's only a finite amount of information we can go through with the staff we have. But that certainly, um, the, the more people, the more eyes, the more technology, the more programs we have looking for stuff and helping us uncover that information, the better opportunity we have to prevent something from happening instead of always working reactive. It's helping you discover more information faster. Absolutely. But the system doesn't catch everything. Tips to police don't always make it into the suspicious activity reporting network. Also, DPS says the El Paso Walmart shooting suspect visited certain hate-filled online forums and uploaded a racist manifesto shortly before the attack. Those actions weren't discovered until it was too late. He walked in here, spent a little, bit, a little bit of time inside the Walmart, went back to his vehicle, posted uh, his hateful manifesto, and then walked in there and started to, to murder people. At the end of the day, I think, uh, in the face of tragedy, El Paso demonstrated the best in humanity uh, that any community, I think, could, would be able to demonstrate um, in the face of this horrific um, murder. A few weeks before that Walmart reopened, we met up with El Paso State Representative Cesar Blanco outside, next to a growing makeshift memorial of candles, cards, ribbons, and photos lining the block on the back side of the store. Yeah, where 22 people were gunned down and uh, over 20 people were Wounded. Blanco sits on one of the legislative committees focused on this issue. I think as someone who represents uh, the community that was attacked, uh, the district that was attacked, uh, I will be vocal in making my community's voice heard. The governor has suggested increasing the presence of suspicious activity reporting. I think it's important. I think it's part of a, a broader um, uh, method of, of combating this type of violence. 
Uh, the governor, you'll often hear him say, if you, if you see something, say something. I think that's one component of this. Uh, I think it's not the only tool that we use to combat this type of violence, but it's an important one. We saw uh, the mother of the individual who, who came here to uh, shoot our community um, had reported to the police um, that uh, she didn't believe her son should own this type of weapon. That's, that's a red flag. That's something that, that uh, an individual who knew this person uh, and reported it to the police, I think those type of reports are important to mitigate these type of uh, acts of violence. Do you think that anything could have been done to stop what he had planned earlier? If the mother of this individual had reported something to police and, and, and there was no action taken uh, as a result of that, or no process in place for police to take action with in coordination with state police, uh, we as legislators need to implement those uh, type of requirements um, so that these tragedies don't happen and so that local law enforcement um, have the ability or the platform or the mechanism to be able to report to state police that uh, something's not right here, we need to look into this. The Suspicious Activity Reporting Network, this system has existed for years. Why is it not working as effectively as many people believe it should? Well, I think it boils down to uh, communication and required communication from, men, from law enforcement agencies to others. But I don't think it stops there. I think uh, uh, it, it, it extends to the social media platforms that, that uh, we're seeing a lot of this activity happening. People posting uh, pictures of themselves. For the example, in the last committee hearing, uh, who had a picture, had painting of, a, of the Joker with a, with a firearm in his hand saying that uh, uh, they were going to cause some act of violence. Those are the type of things that we're seeing in social media that need to be addressed as well and reported to law enforcement, uh, either whether they're social media platforms themselves or individuals who are um, interacting in social media uh, or police departments that are looking at social media uh, content to making sure that those things are reported. So. Uh, while they, it exists, it's not being utilized as it should be, and uh, we as policymakers need to implement policies that require this type of communication, and we're going to have to hold them accountable. Is that legislation you plan on introducing? Absolutely. I think uh, as a result of these uh, committee hearings that we're having, we're going to look at legislation to, to, to implement these type of things. What I'm looking at specifically is uh, social media platforms. I was very disappointed at the fact that uh, many were invited to uh, participate in the hearing and they didn't show up. Uh, that's unacceptable. People died here. Specifically, who was that disappointment for you? Google sent a letter. Uh, they didn't send a representative. Uh, we didn't see a rep uh, have a representative from Twitter. Uh, we didn't have a representative from Amazon. These are uh, $1 billion a day uh, entities, and they could have at least sent a person to represent their organizations on, on how they're going to help us combat this type of violence. There are critics that say suspicious activity reporting can go too far, that you might be flagging someone who's really not a danger, and this kind of creates a stigma. Sure. I mean, look, we, we want to make sure that the First Amendment is protected. We want to make sure that people's privacy are protected. But there's got to be a balance. Um, in the aftermath of 9-11, our, our, our country was um, inconvenienced by extra security checks at TSA, etc. But we feel safer. And I think some people are going to have to give up a little bit of something so that the collective good uh, remains safe. It's something we've heard from several mass shooting survivors during our research, including one of the first in Texas in 1980, where members of a small town church say the signs were all there that a man they knew could be someone who could commit such a violent act. And after so many years living with that thought, 
they're ready to share their story. Next time. That day when he entered, it was darkness, cold, you could smell death. I knew right away that, that was him. I felt uneasy because he was such a loose cannon. Catalyst is reported, produced, and edited by me, Josh Hinkle, along with David Barrer, Ben Freeberg, and Arzo Dost. Digital support for this episode comes from Dax Dobbs, Eric Henriksen, Steffi Lee, Matt Mitchell, Wes Rappaport, Robert Sims, and Kate Winkle. KXAN's news director is Chad Cross, and its vice president and general manager is Eric Glassberg. 